this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Dahlia Schweitzer, the author of Going Viral, Zombies, Viruses, and the End of the World, and Rob Thomas, who is the creator of Veronica Mars and the co-creator of iZombie and Party Down. He's also the author of several young adult novels, including Rats, Saw God, and Slave Day. Thank you both for being here with me today. Thank you. Yeah, great to be here. So I'd like to start, Dahlia, you and I talked about a month ago about your book, and this is just sort of a follow-up to that and to talk to Rob a little bit about the work he's done in the entertainment industry with looking at zombies. And so I'm wondering if you can just sort of start by talk, giving us some framework, talking a little bit about some of the major themes in your book for us before we get into a zombie. Um, so just a little bit of background is my my book looks at what I call outbreak narratives in contemporary American film and television, which means narratives where there is a viral outbreak. Uh, so I look at movies like Contagion, I Am Legend, TV shows like The Walking Dead, Last Man on Earth. Um, so basically narratives that revolve around some kind of massive viral outbreak. And I was interested to see how that narrative kind of evolved over time because it really only originated in the early to mid nineties. And so I kind of, I trace the various historical and cultural things that were happening at the time during the nineties. And then I look at how it evolved. And what's interesting is that starting with the resident evil video game in 1996 and with 28 days later in 2002, we start to get zombies fused with infection. And so not only tapping into our fears of a viral outbreak, but also tapping into our fears of zombies, which are great allegories for all kinds of different things. So I started looking at all these contemporary zombie narratives, which were all about infection. Um, and it's funny because uh, one of my students actually suggested that I watch iZombie because I was teaching this subject matter in class and we're talking about zombies and infection. And I was like, yeah, yeah, it's on my list. I'll get around to it. Um, and then I started watching it and I was like, wow, this is taking the conversation about zombies and infection even further than I could have imagined. And so that's what really drew me to the show because the show really treats the condition of being a zombie as if you have some kind of, um, you know, long-term illness. And there's a lot of conversation about, you know, what do you do if you have it? And do you tell your partner if you have it? And how do you have protected sex? And what happens if your partner catches it from you? And just all these different questions, which mirror real life conversations for people who have, you know, HIV. Um, and that was what sort of drew me to the show was I thought it was really engaging with all these complex questions in this really interesting way. And so, that's what made me reach out to Rob initially to ask him questions about the show. And he confirmed that, yes, they're, the comparisons between you know being a zombie and having some kind of long-term illness are very intentional on the part of the writer's room. 
So, Rob, I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about the the start of what brought this show about. I know it's very loosely based on a comic book series, which I've read, um, but very loosely. And so can you talk a little bit about creating this and the choices you made at the beginning? And then maybe we can move into um, what's going on in sort of the later seasons. Uh, sure. It's, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Dahlia mentioned um, 28 days later, and I, and I really think that before uh, 28 days later, I, I, I was never interested in zombies. Um, I just, and it's the strangest thing as a writer, like I am totally fine with fake science. Uh, you know, with fake science, I will do all day. Um, and yet the supernatural holds almost no, no interest for me. So when zombies were up from the grave, uh, I, I, was, I was never interested in a zombie thing. And then once I saw 28 Days Later, um, my producing partner and I started on this zombie apocalypse show. Um, and we spent six weeks developing a pitch, getting ready to take it out. We scheduled our meetings. And literally two days before we were going to have our first pitch meeting, uh, you know, the front page of Variety was Frank Darabont uh, sells Walking Dead to uh, uh, AMC. And, you know, it, it was it was crushing at the time and then uh, even more crushing once it became uh, the biggest show in America. <laughs> Um, and, and, and ours, and, and, and that my, the original pitch, the, the, the zombie show that I was going to do was, uh, very walking dead in nature. It was not sort of the, uh, the, you know, the, the sort of comic zombies in real life, the more Buffy toned, uh, show that I zombie became, it was like, uh, there are very few left of us on the planet and how will we survive? Um, uh, and then I, and then once that was killed, I didn't think uh, much about zombies until the uh, until the head of Warner Brothers Development brought me the iZombie comic book, and uh, and she brought me that, and I at the time I was uh, wrapping up editing on the Veronica Mars movie, and I and I w- had already written a pilot that season. And so this was going to be my second pilot. And I was overwhelmed. And I said, there, you know, there's just no way I can write. I don't have time. Um, but the head of development at Warner Brothers can be very persuasive. And she just not take no for an answer. And essentially the mandate, the thing she said is the CW network needs its next uh, Buffy. It needs its next Veronica. And she showed me the cover and said, you know, essentially pointed at the cover and said, this, you know, this, this could be that girl, please write this. Uh, and, uh, and I, I've written a ton of stuff with, uh, uh, Diane Ruggiero, Ruggiero Wright. Uh, she was sort of my right-hand writer on, uh, Veronica Mars and the co-creator on this. And she loves zombies. She loves zombies of every flavor. Um, she does not miss any zombie stuff that's on the air. So, um, you know, I think she would have been fine whether the zombies were, you know, up for the, from the grave or virus based. It was the, it was the one thing I cared very much about at that point. I said, please, let's, let's make it closer to sci-fi than supernatural because I, I, I won't be interested in writing it otherwise. 
Uh, that was a very long answer to a very simple question, <laughs> but that's, those are the auspices of the show. No, and that's fine. And so, Dahlia, how do you see that sort of fitting into the larger sort of zombie narratives that you were seeing in when you were looking at how zombies sort of played out within popular culture and film and television? Well, it's interesting because I think, and I have sort of joked with him about this before, that I think Rob is more clued into the zeitgeist on an unconscious level than maybe he realizes, um, which is why I keep writing books about his work. And obviously, Veronica Mars was well ahead of its time. And I think that when Rob had the instinctual um, the decision to make it more sci-fi than supernatural that actually made it much more relevant in a contemporary fashion. Um, because I think when we think of supernatural, that's more like in the realm of vampires, werewolves, and that kind of thing these days. And again, now when you talk about zombies over and over and over again, it's like an infection. And there's, like, there's a great scene in Planet Terror where the guy who's been, um, you know, is turning into a zombie, he goes to the hospital and he's looked at and the guy's diagnosing him with all these medical terms, you know, and saying, oh, you've got gangrene and there's no way you were bitten today. And here's what's going on. And so I think that's that's where we're at now, where zombies really managed to fuse our fears of terrorism with our fears of infection. Um, and I think what else is interesting is you know, AIDS used to be a death sentence. And now it's just some kind of it's seen as more of like this, like long term illness that you manage, which is exactly how the Z virus is portrayed in iZombie. You know, it's it's not a death sentence to become a zombie. It's just you have to adapt and you have to live your life. And, you know, I think it's interesting, first, that we're seeing more and more shows like Santa Clarita Diet or Warm Bodies, where it's all these kind of like, you know, new approaches of looking at at zombies um, and to make it more. I mean, I think, I think we want that sort of medical credibility, but also that's what we're afraid of right now. We're afraid of, of viruses. Right. And Rob, like your show started, right? iZombie started with this idea that people didn't want um anyone to know they're a zombie and and you move very quickly well not very quickly but you moved over the course of we're in season four right now to the course of that zombies are sort of out there in the public and zombies need to they can exist and they can be and so how that how did that sort of change occur what was it about was it just sort of this natural idea that you had going on from the beginning that the zombies were going to um be sort of hidden and then they were going to sort of come out in public or was there a reason that that movement happened um yeah i mean we we did uh we we did plan that from the beginning um we weren't sure until we were in the thick of it um how how long it would be before each major event that uh that would take place like um i mean certainly zombies being out in the open um was going whether that came at the end of season three or the end of season four was something we just felt like we'll feel it when we get there, which uh, which we kind of did. Um, uh, I, but I remember we talked about you know how fun it would be you know someday in the future when uh, zombies are out and there's like a 
a zombie district, you know, and, you know, like a place where, you know, every other store is like a, a, a tanning salon. And, you know, we started talking about a, a zombie nightclub, you know, in season one, even though we knew that wasn't going to happen uh, uh, for quite a while. But yeah, I mean, this idea of like, um, you know, zombies gravitating to their own community and it, and it being, you know, to some degree a, uh, you know, like West Hollywood here in Los Angeles, you know, like it, they, that there becomes this niche. It's, it's a place where zombies felt comfortable to gravitate uh, to where if perhaps they weren't accepted everywhere, they have their, they have a place where they are. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, we, we, we found, we, I don't think we've had any more fun writing the show than, than this season. Um, this season, you know, with, with zombies out in the open and uh, the walls up around the city and sort of the, uh, the the internal political conflict that that creates it 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 has been fun getting there. Um, but 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 I guess I, I I also enjoyed this the 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 season of Liv believing she's the only one or one of two zombies out there was also fun to play. Right, and it's interesting to me, and one of you or both of you might want to talk about this more. That idea of what I was drawn, what drew me to the show in the first place was being a fan of Veronica Mars and then hearing there's this zombie who's going to solve murders, right? She's going to eat the brains and that's going to change her personality. And you found with um, Rose McIver, like she is so wonderful <laughs> in being able to sort of take on all these roles. Um, I, I watched Monday nights and, you know, being a rapper and coming out and doing her whole shtick. But like that idea of like, Usually we see zombies and they're just sort of this walking dead kind of thing, right? So what do you, what made you really want to do that, this idea of like, how can a zombie help solve murders? How can a zombie, you know, um, see these visions and, and that role? Uh, well, you know, in, I mean, the first thing we had to do was decide how she got her brains. And, you know, in the, in the comic, uh, uh, in the graphic novel, um, she uh, she's a she works at a cemetery. She's a grave digger, um, but that didn't give us a case of the week, um, uh, which is why we thought, well, let's put her in the morgue, and then sort of decisions, uh, you know, the police morgue, and so then decisions sort of unfolded from there. Like if she's working in the police morgue, she must have been studying to be a doctor, and so what if what if she wanted to save lives, and when we meet her, she is uh, she's she's lost all zest. She's both a zombie uh, literally and a zombie because she no longer has a spirit to go on because all of everything that she valued her, you know, her fiance and her career have been uh, taken away from her. Um, so once, w- once you take that leap, the sort of the, the pieces, it forces you to answer all these questions uh, about the, the mythology um, about where the show uh, is going. And then a lot of the stuff from the graphic novel got jettisoned. Uh, yeah. Oh, and the other thing I was going to say is, um, you know, things that, I mean, some weird, you know, weird key moments for us. I mean, they were huge moments 
when we decided them at the time, like the, the discussions, like if you, uh, if she, you know, like ate the brain of a virtuoso guitar player, could she play guitar? Um, and, uh, and we decided, yes, she, she will have that. She will have that skill. Um, but like she could not, if she ate the brain of an NFL linebacker, she couldn't, start making tackles like there are some things that we just physically couldn't do but it that seems maybe obvious having seen the show for four for four years but uh at the time they were like huge huge decisions like where the line between clever and stupid was on this show was as difficult as any show uh as i've ever been on and um you know the idea of uh, God, we the writers room. We've probably had hours long discussions on what happens in the digestive tract of a zombie. Um, you know, you know what what is zombie sex like? Um, you know, like there there were some real arguments. You know, made like zombie sex should be better. You know, kind of like uh, in True Blood, like vampire sex is better. But that that felt like at the time it felt so like unfair to major like if at, at, the, at the time we were discussing it like what if Liv has the best sex of her life with a zombie will if we ever decide she and major get back together will it always be a disappointment um, like these these were long conversations in the writers' room. So Dahlia, do you see some of that fitting in with your research and that work? And I don't know where you're at with iZombie, if you're caught up with the last season. No, I've been watching the last season. And so what I think is so fascinating is how the show just keeps um, going off. Like it, it, it's evolving in a natural way uh, for the, the various theories and hypotheses I have in my book. Um, can you hear the dogs barking? Okay. I put them in the kitchen, but they're still barking. I'm going to go in another room. Um, so sorry. Uh, um, so what I, what I think is so interesting about I zombie is how it's taking the zombie narrative further and doing something new and different to it. And what I talk about in the book is the notion of the outbreak narrative as a film cycle rather than a film genre. And so with the genre, things have to stay the same for decades, right? So a romantic comedy is a romantic comedy is a romantic comedy. Um, but with a film cycle, you update, you're forced to update every five to 10 years because otherwise it feels stale because it's so kind of tied to current events. Um, and so I think what Rob recognized instinctually is that, you know, you need to do something different in order to make the show interesting for him, but also to viewers. And it's, you know, I find The Walking Dead to be hopelessly boring. Um, and so I think when I talk about iZombie, I mean, there's so many things that are sort of new and different about that show, but just having, first of all, having a female protagonist, uh, you know, is unusual. You know, zombie narratives do not commonly have sort of strong female protagonists. But then 
the gimmick of her eating different brains and taking on different personalities and becoming this sort of mercurial person um, allows the show to have this really three-dimensional woman, which when you watch iZombie, you realize how limited other shows are. And even shows like The Good Wife, which I loved, you know, Alicia Florek was still basically Alicia Florek from week to week. There weren't any kind of major changes in her personality. She was sort of consistently, you know, who she was. Whereas I think, as any real-life woman can attest to, you're not the same person on Wednesday that you were on Monday. And you're not the same person at 5 p.m. that you were at 6 a.m. I mean, maybe I have the moods. I'm alone with the mood swings. But it's like... I feel like that's just part of being a human being that you are mercurial, you know, that you're in a good mood and then you're in a bad mood. And maybe you want to put on overalls because you're feeling more like a jock. And then the next day you wear a cocktail dress. And so I think the gimmick of iZombie allows for this portrayal of this really multidimensional woman that we don't normally see on television. And so I find that to be to be really fascinating and kind of empowering. And it's one of the reasons, you know, why I love that show so much is it's really, it's taking the zombie narrative to this very unexpected and sort of sophisticated and complex place. Right. And Liv as a character too is evolving in ways that there's no way she would have evolved if she didn't, wasn't a zombie. Right. Exactly. And Um, also, the the I mean and in, in, in season one there are tons of these references where she's constantly talking about how now that she's dead she's more alive than she ever was and so kind of playing on this notion you know that we're we're zombies in our day to day life you know she's got her plan to be a doctor and she's going to marry major and she has everything is like locked in a row and then when she gets the zombie virus suddenly it like loosens her up. Um, and there's the great episode uh, where she eats the brains of the, the girl she knew in college, who was like this kind of reckless adventurous. Um, and uh, Rose MacGyver, um, Liv, walks out of her house to go to work and she's about to put her key in the door. And then she, you can kind of see the wheels turn. And then she's like, no. And she gets on a bicycle and she rides her bicycle through Seattle. And it's just so empowering because you can see that she's really, you know, she's pushing the boundaries. She's going outside of her comfort zone in a way that if she had remained human her whole life would never have been afforded to her. Mm-hmm. And I found it interesting, and I, either of you can talk to this, that this move in this season um, to renegade, right, and this this use of having coyotes and getting people, because becoming a zombie for some people means life as opposed to death, right? For others, they think zombie means I'm going to die, but, you know, we've got these people who are sick and if they can become a zombie or they can reunite with their family and they can all be zombies. And so that's this really interesting take on the zombie narrative as well that you don't see. Yes. I've had to give up on the walking dead as well because it's the same story. It's just over and over and over. Right. And it doesn't change. Yeah. And what else is interesting is, um, so when I talk to my students about film cycles versus film genre, I actually show them a trailer for this other CW show that was called Containment. 
um, I don't know if you it was like six episodes or something. It was just a blip on the radar. Um, but they, the premise behind the show was basically, oh, there's an outbreak and people are quarantined and what happens? And so I use that as an example or sort of a warning of what happens when you don't reinvent the film cycle and you just try to revisit stuff that's been done before and the, the show failed and just disappeared and no one remembers it anymore. And then so what I think is great about iZombie is you have that notion of the containment and the quarantine, but instead we have all these other layers that are put on top of it. And then just all the sort of, you know, the, the prejudice against zombies and sort of spray painting people's houses. If you think zombies live there and beating people up because you think they're zombies. And I mean, it just, it taps into so many things that are happening in our real world right now. Um, It's just being done through this sort of thinly veiled metaphor. And Rob, I don't know if you have anything to say or want to talk about this, that new move and with Renegade and this sort of um, the use of the coyotes and getting people to safety by bringing them into um, sort of zombie Seattle. Um, You know, well, there's, you know, in the writer's room, there's just, there's always a lot of discussion about if, if this happened, then this would happen. Um, You know, if, if the world became aware uh, of, that there was a zombie outbreak in Seattle, how would it respond? Um, and so that, I mean, we were, you know, we're, we're certainly very conscious of, of, you know, what's going on in the United States, you know, the, the, the discussion of a wall. Um, I, I can't say that that's exactly what motivated us, um, but the notion of a wall and who gets in and who gets out uh, was very appealing to us. You know, we, we liked it for dramatic reasons, you know, the, the, the danger of getting in and, and getting out and what it would mean if a zombie um, made it out into the world or multiple zombies made it out in the world. And, you know, who on the, you know, what would the United States government uh, reaction be to that. And we wanted, you know, we wanted to create this premise. And, it, you know, the interesting thing is, I, I, I think we put major in, in, a, in an incredibly uncomfortable place. But we wanted to create a reality where you understood what chase where, you know, in, in the first three seasons of iZombie, we've had pretty defined bad guys. Um, you know, here are, here are our big bads. You know, the, the season's going to end in a shootout. Um, you know, with this, uh, I, I should really probably say the first two seasons, uh, we wanted to do something different after the outbreak where um, there is no true bad guy. Um, the, the, there isn't somebody who's just all evil. Um, that Chase Graves is thinks very much that he is doing the right thing um, and that Major has chosen to follow him. And I think, I think that Chase and also Major along with him are making this valid point. Zombies in the sea are starving. Um, these coyotes are bringing in more people to become zombies and we can't feed those that we have. Um, therefore, um, live by being a coyote and trying to bring these people to save their lives are, are in fact doing a disservice. And yet, uh, judging by, you know, sort of 
the weekly reviews of the show or Twitter. Um, everybody, no, it is a very black and white uh, thing for our audience. Everybody is on Liv's side, and everyone thinks that uh, that you know, like uh, Major is like Rilo. What's it, Rilo? What's his last name in Star Wars? Like, is completely. Kylo Ren, you know, has completely gone over to the dark side, which is not at all how I view it, or I think the the writing staff views it. We want to make it an interesting philosophical debate. Um, in fact, um, and 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 a you know, I I think that possibly what um, uh, what uh, Angus is doing, uh, his his uh, his church might be a dark place. Um, yeah, you know what? Just to get this thing, I actually think if there's anything overtly political that that we are doing, where there is where it is not driven by what is good story, but is sort of driven by you know our current political landscape, I think the big question is: Will the center hold? You know, um, in a in a you know, I think if we get to do a season five, you know, there are going to be radicalized humans uh, on one side, and and uh, and radicalized, I mean, zombies. And the question will be: Can can we all get along? Can can humans and zombies forge a uh, a working relationship and survive as a city together, or will the two extremes pull them too far right. apart? Right. And major, besides the name Major Lily White, which is like the greatest name ever, I just every time I'm like, that's the greatest. He's also conflicted with like bringing these these you know young kids these kids in right that he loved so much throughout the whole all four seasons and seeing them starving and realizing well how can I help them I can bring them into this thing that I'm really not 100% sure of but I know it's going to give them a better life than it would have if they were just like on the street waiting for their rations uh yeah that's a storyline that I've really liked and uh uh, without spoiling it, I, I I really adore how we pay that off this season. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I, I hope that, you know, in that uh, there are people, like-minded people who see Major's humanity and and do not think that he has simply gone off a cliff. No, I don't think. No. No, he seems very tortured over Yes, it. very much so, right? And ha- uh, continuing relationships. It's so yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Just uh, this this week, um, uh, you know, at the end of this week's episode, it's episode nine. Um, at the end, uh, Chase uh, shoots this guy who's out killing zombies, and then rather uh, rather than put him out of his misery or put him in jail, he has he asks Major to scratch him so that he can execute him via guillotine. And uh, I read multiple reviews in which that said Major did so without hesitation, and and I did I, I had to go back and look and no there's absolute conflict in his in his eyes like how it's people I, I believe are seeing sort of the vision of it that they that they that they want to see in that it's like a it's a Rorschach test for I, I zombie fans. <laughs> No, I've always seen him as very conflicted. And I've always seen Chase as very conflicted. It might have to do with the fact that I I see some thematics between um, his character and Veronica Mars and, you know, and Chase Graves. There's 
there's some thing, you know, patterns there. But I've always seen Major as this very conflicted, and and how does he stay in this relationship with Liv as well as um, Ravi and everyone else, and still go to work every day? And what does that mean for him? So we've been talking about iZombie for a while, and I know that Dahlia has a new project and that she's working on and that Veronica Mars is involved in that. And so as the marshmallow that I am, um, <laughs> so you can talk a little bit about um, what you're working on next. And maybe we can talk a little bit about Veronica Mars. Absolutely. Um, so I actually am just finishing up the revisions, uh, which I have to submit to the publisher next week. So I'm very much in the thick of it. But uh, the next book is called LA Private Eyes. And it looks at the private detective in Los Angeles in film, literature and fiction. Oh, sorry, film, literature and television. Um, and the, the book sort of establishes the importance of Los Angeles as place to the private detective um, and then sort of analyzes the various tropes of the character of the private detective. And then it looks at what happens when the private detective is, you know, the conventional white male what happens when he's an African-American, what happens when the private detective is a female, and what happens when the private detective is a child. And it's funny, so I was working on the book uh, last summer, and in the final chapter, I was really only talking about Nancy Drew, and there wasn't really, there wasn't really enough there. And so I was trying, like kind of racking my brain, being like, you know, who, what other child detectives can I talk about you know, that, that are in LA. Um, and then I realized, oh yeah, Veronica Mars is near LA. Close enough. Uh, Close enough. Close enough. Yeah. Well, that it actually ends up being significant because I, I sort of talk about how, because she's a child, she's in this sort of smaller, um, environment, you know, like it's like, she's not grown up enough for LA, you know? So she's, she's kind of, um, getting her chops in this smaller town, but it's still very much Southern California and everything. So it's like enough fits. So then I went back and I rewatched all of uh, Veronica Mars and I was just kind of like, wow, well, this, you know, brings my book to its natural conclusion. Um, and so I, I talk about Veronica because it was interesting is the, the private detective cannot be an adult woman. Um, it is just so problematic when she's an adult, when it's an adult woman, and that she either has to be an imperfect woman or an imperfect detective, but she can't be both. Uh, and what's interesting is the child female can get away with it because the child female is not, no one's saying, why aren't you married? You know, why don't you have kids? Why aren't you being a normal woman? Um, and so it's kind of like the child detective is the way of bringing a female into the private detective equation. Uh, so the Veronica Mars character to me is so fascinating because she kind of, she gets away with it. Um, but then I'm hoping Rob isn't mad because I critique the movie a little bit, um, because the movie starts bringing in problems. And that's like where you kind of, you see the problems of what happens when she's an adult and trying to be a private detective and how it sort of, you can see all the cracks in the foundation. So Rob, can you talk a little bit about what, um, why Veronica Mars, what, what, what caused you to create Veronica Mars and that that sort of this young adult 
child, you know, as um, Dahlia says, child, but this sort of young woman who is um, a badass detective <laughs> or private eye, I guess. Um, sure. I mean, the, the origin of it was uh, at the time, I mean, uh, when the idea for the, you know, for the, the, the basic plot structure uh, uh, and setup for, for the, uh, for what became Veronica Mars was actually supposed to be my third uh, novel for Simon and Schuster, or I'm, I'm sorry, my, was supposed to be my fifth novel for Simon and Schuster. And I had, and it was just called Untitled Detective. Um, and, uh, and I, and I'd sold it. I'd actually been paid the advance money uh, on it. And that's when I got hired by Dawson's Creek um, uh, and got my first TV job and started making TV money and couldn't look back. Um, but the, um, the, 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 the re at the time uh, it was going to be a teenage boy. Um, and, you know, my, even though I, I had written first person from a couple female points of view, mostly at that, at that point in my career, I mostly wrote uh, male characters. Um, I, I've now become the go-to guy for, for, for a female voice. Um, but, um, but one of the things I was really interested in, uh, with, uh, with that project was this, uh, you know, I taught high school, um, for many years and, and I was interested in this phenomenon of the prematurely jaded teen, and you know, I felt like the internet, you know, was in large part responsible for it. Like the access to everything, um, the the kids today grow up faster than we did. That the age of innocence is shorter um, for them, and it was interesting to me with a male protagonist in that story. But when I started considering it with a female protagonist, it became so much more interesting to me. Uh, I think we just, uh, I don't know, uh, as a society, I think we ache more for the, for the loss of innocence of, of female characters. And I wanted to write about somebody who, you know, makes it through this horrible, horrible ordeal and grows tough, you know, um, it, it, you know, the other sort of female heroines of her age on television and, and you know, I guess they're not all her age, but young female characters, like at the time, uh, whether it was Buffy or, you know, or Alias, like they, they were literally ass kicking characters and the thing I wanted with Veronica was sort of uh, was somebody who was fearless without any literal ass kicking abilities. You know, it's I wanted somebody who said the thing that you wish you'd said uh, in that moment of of confrontation or conflict. Um, you know, when I when I was teaching high school, I felt teenagers. Certainly, and you know, I taught freshman English, and I, I don't know if there are any more self-conscious people on the planet than than you know, fourteen-year-old girls. And to have somebody as a role model who just 
who put up with no shit, who could not be embarrassed by her peers, who refused to be put down. That to me was Veronica's superpower. Um, and I, and I thought that that's what resonated with people. Oh, I, um, used to teach high school as well. And now I teach college students who are going to be high school English teachers. And Veronica Mars is on that list. Like there's these certain shows that I am always like, if you want to understand sort of teenagers in, in important ways, or, you know, Veronica Mars is a great show. Freaks and Geeks is another one, but like Veronica does that, right? She also figures out how, what she's really good at and what she needs help with and then finds the people to do, to help her to get what she wants. And what's interesting is the classic private detective uses words as his sort of sparring device. So it it fits perfectly within the sort of the private detective uh, template. And I appreciate too with Veronica Mars that, right, so you have the case of the week, but you also have these sort of larger cases and just how, the like her larger case, her larger, you know, she needs to find out what happened to her. Um, and in these ways that it all sort of comes together very beautifully, I think, um, in the end. And, and so thinking, did you, was that arc already set in place? that you really wanted to um, to get her to that point through the, through the first two seasons, right? We get to. Yeah. Well, it was, um, it, I, I knew certain things about the arc. I mean, you know, this seems funny in retrospect, but um, we were halfway through season one. And, I, and when I pitched season one uh, to the network at the time, uh, I knew I knew who the killer was. I knew how the murder happened. I knew how all of the 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 characters fit into the plot of that season one case. I didn't know every red herring or you know it, no one could hold an entire twenty two episode season in their head before they start. Um, but but you know I figured if I if I knew where that season ended and didn't step on that 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 we could make it to the end. Um, and halfway through the season, the uh, network called me and said, okay, what, what is the big season two mystery? And I, I thought, Oh, we're, are we doing a big season two mystery? I, 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 thought, I thought we were going to solve this one. And then it's just going to be girl detective case of the week. Um, and uh and, and, and it became tricky after that. And the, it becomes tricky because it, it, it becomes a little like murder. She wrote like, wait a minute, these same six series regulars are all going to fit into, you know, they're all going to have in critical pieces in a season two mystery. It, 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 and, you know, you're also in that sequel pattern of uh, then does it have to be like, how do you top my best friend was murdered and I was raped? Um, mm -hmm. it, 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 you know, the, anything at that point to me felt like, well, how do we hit that level again? It's not going to have the same personal stakes. Nothing will uh, at that point. So it, it was a challenge moving forward. You know, the thing about Veronica, you know, that I and her arc, it, it, it's interesting because 
like I had this challenge uh, whenever I read fan fiction and uh, and I don't very often, but occasionally I, I will see it. I, God, I really don't want people sending me fan fiction. Um, the, <laughs> and, and this even, I mean, God, this started halfway through season one is you create a character who has warts. You, you, you create a character who isn't all sunshine. Uh, like, and Veronica was, you know, the, the thing I said in the writer's room is just write her like a porcupine. Like that, that is her spirit animal. It's a porcupine <laughs> will lash out at people and she will take things too far. And, um, and think when I see other people like try to write Veronica is, or when I, when I read, you know, uh, fan feedback, they all want her perfected now. It's, it's, wow. we, we, fall, mm. we fell in love with a flawed character. Wow. Now we would like her to be heroic at all times. And, and that's always, it's, it's, uh, it's a challenge. I, you know, Veronica, when I was, uh, my first season, uh, of the first television I ever wrote was season one of Dawson's Creek. And the second episode I wrote was, uh, one in which, uh, Joey, like some one, some of the football players uh, was going around saying he had sex with Joey, and uh, and I remember the the conflict I got in with the showrunners is that everything, like all the response, all the responses that I wanted her to have to this guy belittling her uh, were not nice enough. People, the, the 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 feedback I would get was people will not like her. If if she if she's not nice if if she doesn't resolve this in some sweet way um, and so uh, there Veronica may have been me unleashing some frustration with that <laughs> but and that's who Veronica should be right so Kristen Bell seems to just embody that character in these ways like. Did was she a part of any evolution of Veronica, or did you just have in mind like this is who I want, and she just sort of ran with it? Um, well, you always start writing for the actor you have. Like after the, you know, you write the pilot episode, and it's the only one where you don't know who the actor is. Uh, and then after that, you always have the actor in your head. Um, uh. Kristen was the was a godsend. Um, she she is just so monumental, monumentally talented. I I marvel at it. Um, there's a scene in the pilot um, where it is the most. It, it's the it's the scene where she wakes up and realizes that you know she finds her underwear on the floor, realizes that she has been raped, uh, drugged and raped, and there and she she sheds a tear while getting this steely look on her face and you know you you audition the actors you know you might they might write, read three or four scenes they don't do that scene and i remember being behind the camera and going holy shit um we we have a show here um like we get oh my god it, and you know she did like six takes of this and you know the joke became like, 
how many tears and out of which eye. Um, <laughs> like, you are a machine, lady. Uh, yeah, and we got, I've been very fortunate with both those uh, lead actresses. Again, because like Rose, when she, audi- when she auditioned, she auditioned with the scenes in the pilot. She didn't audition doing, you know, white rapper or, you know, any of the other 40 things that we have put her on. She's just uh, both a hard worker and a really talented actress. I, I have been fortunate. Yeah, no, both of them. Uh, we were, And I think Dahlia and I were talking about this in our first interview that those those women are just so wonderful for those roles. And they have roles where they can shine and sort of be themselves and, and really make those characters strong and multifaceted. And what's interesting is, um, I mean, I again, I can only speak from my own personal experiences, but I know as a woman, you get tired of being told to be nice. And so it's funny to hear that story about Joey, because I feel like a lot of women have been in that situation where it's like, oh, this is uncomfortable, but I don't want to offend anybody. And so there is something really refreshing about both Veronica and Liv, because it's kind of like they have no shame. Right, right. Uh, And as a male writer, I got tired of being told to write women who have to be nice. Yeah, exactly. So yes, no, imagine he, how we feel. <laughs> I was going to say when exactly you know what when, like when you were talking, it made me really think of Michelle mm-hmm. Wolf and what happened this right and this idea that she's getting attacked because she wasn't right. nice and because women are supposed to be nice and she's like yeah no that's not what I do right and so I, I yes I appreciate that and I think one thing that drew me to Veronica Mars was the fact that she wasn't nice like she got yes she got to say those things that I was like that's exactly what I would say <laughs> I love that um one thing that I also found interesting, and, and I don't know, Dolly, if this came up in, in your writing and your work, is her relationship with mm-hmm. her father and and the importance of that relationship to her as sort of a detective, but also as as a teenager, right? And I don't know if you wrote about that at all, Dahlia, but I'd love to hear what you both have to say about that relationship between Veronica and her dad. Um, I'm actually curious to hear what Rob says first, and then I'll jump in. Okay, awesome. Um, yeah, it's um, one of the things that I'm really learning now, which is, and it's so, it's been so much fun. Uh, my 13 year old daughter is now watching Veronica Mars for the first time. We're like midway Aww. through season three, and there are moments in it where she looks at me like, like. We, in some ways I wrote Keith as the dad I wanted to be. And there are, there are so many phrases and ways in which he deals with things. Like she's going like, this is so weird. Uh, This is so like, she will hear me isms in Keith uh, all the time. Um, When I, when I wrote, when I wrote the pilot, um, I, 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 I wrote it in, I didn't. I I said, do not write it exactly as you want it, without any notion of what network it will end up on. Um, and it gave me this, you know, this this freedom to write it. And it was it was a slightly darker script in the first 
uh, incarnation of it. And the, the, the way in which it was darker was like the pilot that you've seen, um, Keith and Veronica's relationship was fantastic and it was ideal and the one person her in her life that she could count on. Uh, and then in the final moments of the pilot, um, she needs, she thinks um, my dad is continuing to investigate the Lily Kane murder and she breaks into his safe and she finds all these postcards from her mother that Keith has been keeping from her. And what I intended to do and what I wanted to do was tell this story where there's no one left she could trust. Now, at that point, I was going to repair that relationship, you know, over, uh, you know, who knows how many episodes, six episodes, 10 episodes. So it was, but it was, but it was really, the idea was I was going to completely undercut Veronica in the pilot. Uh, and there are many, many, many times you will hear me complain about uh, about your network notes. But in this particular case, I, I got a note from the network that they essentially said, "Look, Rob, her best friend has been murdered. Her uh, she's been raped. Her mother has abandoned the family. Please let her just have Keith." Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and if you ever, you know, the interesting thing is we shot it the way I wrote it. Um, and it's just some tricky, tricky editing at the end uh, that uh, that ellipsed her finding those uh, 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 those postcards from her mom. And uh, and then a little bit of more hopeful voiceover that was put in there so that it did not end on such a grim uh, grim note. So Dahlia, do you have any? Yes. Oh yeah. Um, so I, I did, or I do write about, um, Veronica and her relationship with her father because I find it really fascinating. Um, and there are, there's sort of many levels to it. That's interesting. So one obviously is her father's encouragement, you know, like he, he's the one that trains her how to do, you know, how to use fancy search engines, how to tell when someone's lying, you know, how to do surveillance. Um, and so he treats her as if they're equals, which obviously enables Veronica to be Veronica. Um, but what else is interesting, and I have no idea if this was accidental or not, um, but in, in the chapter, you know, I talk about Veronica and Nancy Drew, and Nancy Drew also doesn't have a mother. Uh, and so I don't know if that was coincidence or not, um, but so Nancy Drew plays a similar role as Veronica does where she kind of, you know, she's the daughter, but she's also taking care of the father. Um, and there's a really great, um, episode, uh, where Veronica comes home to the apartment that she shares with her dad. And she sort of jokingly pretends to be the wife. And she's like, you know, I came home from a long day and here you are lounging on the couch. And so it's really like overtly, almost as if they were the couple, you know, that they're, they're kind of equals with each other more than the traditional sort of father daughter relationship. And then what I thought was very interesting is, so there's 
a lot of tension with Logan where he feels like Veronica isn't including him in, you know, in what she does. And he's mad at her because he says, you know, um, she's not built to let people help her. Um, and he's like, I'm not built to be on the sidelines. And so there's a lot of tension about the fact that she's kind of, she's not allowing herself to need him and she's keeping him at arm's length and she doesn't need him because she has her father. And then in the movie, I thought it was significant that only when the father is out of the way, when he's in the hospital, can Logan and Veronica rekindle their relationship. And when the father is out of the way, now Veronica needs Logan. Um, And so then Logan also in turn feels useful. And so their relationship is able to function better because of the father's absence. So there's actually, I think, tons of really interesting things going on with the father-daughter relationship. So we've been talking for a while. So, But if it's okay, I have one more character I want to talk about. (laughs) Um, And that's Weevil. And I'm really interested into, like, right, bringing in that character and his relationship for, with Veronica and sort of that arc with him as well. So I'm wondering, Rob, if you can talk a little bit about creating that character. Um, yeah. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, it, it's interesting. When we um, first, uh, when when we... Uh, when uh, Veronica Mars first came on the air, we we did a couple or a few of these events. Um, like we had been on for six episodes or something. It, it's not exactly a mall tour, but we went out places to meet the fans. And I and I remember a um, uh, a, a like a mom coming up to me. She was very. You know, she liked the show and her family's watching the show. And she said, you know, I just have this concern, like, um, why, you know, the white characters are, are the, are the, uh, are, are the upstanding characters. And you've got the, the, you know, the characters of color being uh, like the, the criminals. And I remember thinking, well, first of all, Wallace is the heart and soul of the show. There's no one. <laughs> There's no no one nicer in the show than Wallace, and you and did and you know certainly at the time we had six episodes on the air. Like whether or not Weevil is a criminal, a juvenile delinquent, do you think he's nicer than Logan? Do you think is a better you know, is, is Logan a better person than than Weevil? I thought I thought I had, you know the the thing that I initially thought that I could sell the show on was like I I, I wanted. Like a, I wanted to boil the pitch down to two words, and it was just teen noir, and that no one gets out clean. You know, they're like, like they're like it is a show that's going to exist in shades of gray, um, and and Wallace may be the one failure uh, in there. Wallace has managed to make it through pretty unscathed, but um, but you know that idea of of. Uh, a guy who came up through the, uh, you know, that Keith would know from his days of sheriff because he was the, the bad boy, the, the quintessential juvenile delinquent, felt like a good character to have in the show. It felt like, you know, Veronica, before we knew her, was, you know, was hanging out with the cool kids and the pretty kids and the, money kids and now that she uh 
now that that was not her life anymore, who should she be hanging out with? And it was it was the motivation for uh, creating the Weevil character. So, Dahlia, do you have? Did you look at any of those minor characters, or I mean, they're not minor, but any of those other characters and that relationship? It's funny because I don't think I did, but now I feel like maybe I should go back and add a little bit. Um, but I, I think that the notion of teen noir is something that I totally recognize and embrace. And that's why I was like, oh my God, of course I have to include this in the book. Um, and it does play on this notion of the shades of gray and everyone is a little bit amoral and no one's solidly good or solidly bad. Um, and that's what I thought was so compelling about Weevil. And it was funny when Rob was telling the story about the woman coming up to him and I was thinking, God, I didn't get that impression at all. And then I started to wonder, like, did I miss something? Um, and so I always feel like Weevil's a good guy who's always helping Veronica out and she kind of takes advantage of him a little bit. Um, so I was just like, wow. And then of course there's Wallace, obviously. Um, so I think, I think, I think, I think the woman, I think she was wrapping the whole PCH, you know, the, the fact that there weren't white kids in the, in the biker club. I think that that meant they were all, that they were all that all the uh, characters of color were um, were bad guys, right? But I think it is appropriate is, for noir that there are it's you know shades of gray, right? And you know, and usually it is like those the rich kids who are the ones who have a little more um, gray to them <laughs> than the other. They're a little yeah less. They're a little more problematic. Um, so, like I said, we've been talking for a while, and I could probably ask a million questions, but uh, I don't know if there's any final things either of you want to say about um, what we've been talking about. Uh, I don't know if Rob is allowed to talk about future projects. I don't know if that's something that is worth throwing in there or if that's still kind of on the down low. Oh, yeah, I always kind of get in trouble. That's what I figured. I I get, I get burned. It's not even getting in trouble. It's getting burned. It's, um, it's, uh, you know, honestly, right now I have, by the end of this month, I might have zero shows on television or I might have four. <laughs> um, and I truly don't know what number that is going okay. to be. Um, well, all our so, fingers are crossed for uh, you. We'll root for four. <laughs> and I know you. All right. That might kill me, I, I know you've been, um, you have some Veronica Mars books come, you know, that have come out. Is that sort of, are you continuing with that kind of, um, that canon? Uh, no. Um, the, I mean, not, not for the time being, if, if there comes a time when I have no shows <laughs> on the air and can, can devote significant time. I mean, I mean, I, I worked with another writer on, uh, on those, and she was fantastic. Um, but it does require an amount, you know, a, some time for me. Like I, I help break story, and I do some editing on the books. And when I have, when I'm running a show, I just it is time I do not have. And uh, I would, if I, I wouldn't want to do it with and be divorced from it. Um, I only kind of want to do that if I can maintain a hand in it. Right now, I don't have that time. Awesome. Well, we will hope for 
you're say at least I would love to see Izon. I've heard the rumor is that even that Izombie's headed more in the direction of a yes than a no. So I'm gonna go with whatever I'm reading on the you know Twitter sphere and all that. Well, here's the thing. Uh, last year they were all predicting we would be gone. So, um, so I, I don't know exactly. if I didn't trust them. Um, <laughs> did you have a hand in Timeless? Uh, no, I did not. Was that, okay, somebody did because it was the same kind of thing that everybody was like, "This show is going to be gone," and then all of a sudden, yeah, it's back. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, um, Rob Thomas and Dahlia Schweitzer, it's been wonderful talking with both of you. I thank you very much for taking some time to talk to me tonight. All right. I uh, appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.